Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix. And together, we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. Frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's dark enigma, we're going to move away from the usual and bring you an unsolved mystery or a murder mystery. A historical oddity? I don't know. You figure it out. Let me know. All right. With that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, my darlings, is yours, as always. So choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say murder or killer? That will be a single shot. And... Every time I say bell, that'll be a double shot. All right, now that the business end is out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. And buckle up, my darlings, as we bring you a story about a woman who put the black in widow. As we jump into Hell Hath No Fury, the story of Hell's Bell, Guinness. Black Widow of the Midwest. Hell's Bell, Guinness, was America's most degenerate female serial killer in history. Guinness likely killed both of her husbands and all of her children. What is certain is that she murdered most of her boyfriends and two of her daughters, Myrtle and Lucy. 
Between 1884 and 1908, the Norwegian immigrant is believed to have slain over 40 people in Chicago, Illinois and LaPorte, Indiana, profiting from insurance claims and other scams before disappearing without a trace. Born Brunhild Paulsdatter Storseth on November 11, 1859, in Selbu, Norway. Brynhild was the youngest daughter of eight children born of stonemason Paul Pedersen Storseth and Berit Olsdatter. She was raised on a small farm in Inbygda, Norway, and grew up to be a physically strong woman, clocking in at five foot nine and weighing over two hundred pounds. That's right, guys, she's a biggin. One common but unverified story says that when she was about 18 years old, she was pregnant and attended a country dance. While there, she was attacked by a man who kicked her in the abdomen, causing her to miscarry. The man who came from a rich family was never prosecuted by the Norwegian authorities, and afterwards the locals said that Brynhild's personality drastically changed. A short time later, the man who had kicked her died of what was said to be stomach cancer. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. She then went to work as a servant on a wealthy farm for the next several years. Then in 1881, following the example of her younger sister, who immigrated to America earlier, Brynhild moved to the United States, where she assumed a more American-style name, and made her way to Chicago, Illinois, where she again worked as a servant for a little bit of time. In 1884, Gunnis married Mads Ditlev Anton Sorison in Chicago, and a few later, they opened a confectionery store together, which turned out to be a financial disaster. However, a year after its opening, the shop burnt down under suspicious circumstances. Gunnis claimed a kerosene lantern was knocked over accidentally, but no lantern was ever recovered in the ruins. But, despite this, insurance paid out in full. And in 1898, the Sorensen suburban Austin home burnt down and, you guessed it, the insurance money was collected to build another house. Well, I guess insurance has got a little bit mo more wiser in these years, haven't they? Though, some researchers claim that Sorensons, that the Sorensons were childless. Others state that they had four children, Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. Both Caroline and Axel allegedly died of acute colitis in infancy. The symptoms of acute colitis are fever, nausea, diarrhea, lower abdominal pain, and cramping, which just happens to be the symptoms of many forms of poisoning. Mm-hmm-hmm. <laughs> On June 13, 1900, the census records show Gunnis as the mother of four children, two of which were living in the house, Myrtle A. at three and Lucy B. at one. The records also show that an adopted 10-year-old girl was identified as Morgan Couch, later would be known as Jenny Olson, living in the home. Matt Sorensen died on June 30, 1900. The one and only day that his two life insurance policies overlapped. Hmm, I know, I'm sensing a pattern here, are you? I am. 
The first doctor who visited him diagnosed him with strychnine poisoning. However, the Sorensen family doctor had been treating him for an enlarged heart and declared his death to be from heart failure. After his death, Guinness confided to their doctor that she had been giving him powders to help alleviate his discomfort. Though her husband's family demanded an inquiry, claiming that Bell had poisoned her husband to collect on the insurance, no charges were ever filed. In the end, she was awarded $8,500, which would be about $240,000 in today's money, with which she bought a farm on the outskirts of LaPorte, Indiana. Gunnis' new home had an interesting history, to say the very least. In 1846, John Walker built the home for his daughter, Harriet Holcomb. The Holcomb clans were supporters of the Confederacy, while the citizens of LaPorte, well, they were for the Union. And nearly two decades passed before the unpopular clan moved to New York, leaving the farm to change hands about a dozen times until 1892 when a brothel keeper moved in. The brothel keeper, Maddie Altick, a madam from Chicago, bought the property and transformed the farm into a popular, well-appointed, well, whorehouse. Many of her regular customers from Chicago made trips to LaPorte. Their money helped to add a jetty, boathouse, and a large carriage house to the property. After Altick's death, the house changed hands four more times until 1901 when Belle Gunness moved in. Shortly after her arrival, though, the boat and carriage houses both burnt down. Guess she needed some money. As she was preparing the move from Chicago to LaPorte, she became reacquainted with a recent widower by the name of Peter Gunnis, who was also from Norway. Gunnis, a butcher by profession, and Belle were married in LaPorte on April the 1st, 1902. And just one week after the ceremony, Peter's infant daughter died of uncertain causes while alone in the house with Belle. In December 1902, Peter himself met with a tragic accident. According to Bell, he was struck on the head when a sausage-grinding machine had toppled off a high shelf in the kitchen. But when the coroner looked at the body, he allegedly muttered, This is a case of murder. To make matters worse, one of Bell's own children told a classmate that her mother had hit her husband over the head with a cleaver. Though the authorities investigated, the formidable Bell was so convincing that no charges again were ever filed. After hearing of this second accident, Peter's brother Gust arrived at the Gunnis farm and removed Peter's surviving child, a daughter by the name of Swanhild. Gus took the child to Wisconsin before any more accidents could take place. But Gunnis netted $3,000 from Peter's insurance policy. With Bell's husband's death netting her another $3,000, roughly $81,000 today, the local people started to refuse to believe that her husband could be so clumsy. After all, he had run a hog farm on the property and was known to be an experienced butcher. The district coroner reviewed the case, unequivocally announced that he had been murdered and convened a coroner's jury to look into the matter. However, 
Gunnis successfully convinced the investigators that she was innocent of any wrongdoing. At the time, Gunnis did not mention that she was pregnant, despite the possibility that it might have inspired sympathy. And in May 1903, Guinness gave birth to a son that she promptly named Philip. In late 1906, Bell told neighbors that her foster daughter, Jenny Olson, had gone away to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles. But in fact, Jenny's body would later be found buried on her adopted mother's property. And in 1907, she employed a farmhand by the name of Ray Lamphere to help around with chores. But word soon spread that her relationship with Lamphere was more than strictly professional. Wink, wink, if you know what I mean. In fact, when drinking, Lamphere often boasted of sleeping with his employer, which came as a surprise to those who only saw Belle as the burly woman who liked to dress in men's overall and do her own hog butchering. But there was another side to the woman that Lamphere saw, and soon the local folks would as well. Because Lamphere soon proved not to be enough for Belle. She wanted something more, and soon she began to look for new suitors by inserting an advertisement in the Lovelorn column of newspapers in large Midwestern cities that read, and I quote, Personal comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. End quote. Several middle-aged men of means responded to Gunnis's ad. One suitor was a 50-year-old Norwegian man by the name of John Moe, who arrived from Elbow Lake, Minnesota. Introduced as Gunnis's cousin, Moe had brought more than $1,000 with him to pay off her mortgage, or so he told neighbors. He disappeared from her farm within a week of his actual arrival. Next came George Anderson, arrived from Tarkio, Missouri. Unlike Mo, Anderson did not bring all his money with him. Gunnis's letters had persuaded him to make the long trip to see her, but once there, he found that Gunnis, now in her mid-forties, portly and coarse-featured, was not the beauty he had expected. During his visit, he also realized that she had a severe manner, but she had made him feel at home and provided good dinners while he occupied one of her guest rooms. One night at dinner, she raised the issue of her mortgage, and Anderson agreed that he would pay it off if they decided to wed. And at this point, he was almost convinced to retrieve his money and start a life with her. However, late that night, Anderson awoke to see her standing over him with a candle in her hand. He stated that the expression on her face was so sinister that he let out a loud yell and she immediately ran from the room. Anderson jumped out of the bed, threw on some clothes, and fled from the house, taking the first train heading to Missouri. Many more suitors continued to arrive at the Gunnis farm, but only Anderson ever left. Around this time, Gunnis began ordering 
huge trunks to be delivered to her home. Hack driver Clyde Sturgis delivered many such trunks to her from Laporte. He later remarked how the widow would lift these trunks without help, tossing them onto her shoulders and carrying them into the house. It's stated that the shutters of the home were closed day and night, and farmers passing by at night often saw Gunnis digging in the hog pen. Her fiancé, Lamphere, also spent a good deal of time digging in that hog pen, the house, and the barn. Old B. Budsberg was an elderly widower from Iola, Wisconsin, appeared at the Gunnis farm next. He was last seen alive at the Laporte Savings Banks on April 6, 1907, when he mortgaged his Wisconsin land, signing over a deed and obtaining several thousand dollars in cash. Budsberg's sons, Oscar and Matthew, had no idea that their father had gone off to visit Gunnis. When they finally discovered his destination, they wrote to her, and she responded by claiming that she had never seen their father. Several other middle-aged men appeared and disappeared in brief visits to the Gunnis Farm throughout 1907. Then, in December 1907, Andrew Hageline, a bachelor farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, wrote to her and was warmly received. The pair exchanged many letters until a letter that overwhelmed Hegeline, written in Gunnis's own careful handwriting and dated January 13, 1908. This letter was later found at the Hegeline farm, and it read, and I quote, To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world, we will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly when I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song. It is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. End quote. In response to her letter, Helgeline flew to her side in January 1908. He had with him a check for $2,900, his entire savings, which was drawn from his local bank. A few days after Higgeline arrived, he and Gunnis appeared at the savings bank in Laporte and deposited the check for cashing. Higgeline vanished a few days later, but Gunnis appeared at the savings bank to make a $500 deposit and another deposit of $700 in the state bank. Now, Ray Lamphere was deeply in love with Gunnis. He performed any chore for her, no matter how gruesome and he became jealous of the many men who arrived to court his employer, and he started to make a scene. So she fired him on February 3, 1908. Shortly thereafter, Gunnis went to the Laporte courthouse to report that Lamphere was not in his right mind and was becoming a menace to the public. 
She was able to convince local authorities to hold a sanity hearing while Lamphere was pronounced sane and released. Gunnis returned a few days later to complain that Lamphere had visited her farm and argued with her. She claimed that he posed a threat to her family and had him arrested for trespassing. Lamphere stubbornly returned several more times to see her, but she sent him away every single time. And he soon began to make thinly disguised threats. And on one occasion, he told farmer William Slater that Higgeline won't bother me no more. We fixed him for keeps. Interesting. Hegeline had long since disappeared from Laporte, or so everyone had been led to believe. However, his brother, Astley Hegeline, became concerned when Andrew failed to return home, and he wrote to Gunnis, asking her about his siblings' whereabouts. She wrote back, claiming that Hegeline was not at her farm, and probably went to Norway to visit relatives. Astley Higgeline replied that he did not believe his brother would do anything of the sort and that he believed that his kin was still in the Laporte area. Gunnis responded again, telling him that if he wanted to come and look for his brother, then she would help conduct a search, but she would want to be paid for her effort. Astley Higgeline eventually did come to Laporte, but not until May. In March of 1908, Gunnis sent letters to a farmer and horse dealer in Topeka, Kansas by the name of Lon Townsend, inviting him to visit her. Gunnis was also in correspondence with an Arkansas man and sent him a letter dated May 4, 1908. He would have visited her, but did not because of a fire that happened at her farm during that time. Now, Gunnis allegedly promised marriage to a suitor, Bert Albert, which didn't go through because of his lack of money. Next, Belle presented herself to a lawyer in Laporte by the name of M.E. Leelitter, telling him that she feared for her life and that of her children. Ray Lamphere, she said, had threatened to kill her and burn her house down, and she wanted to make out a will in case he went through with his threats. The will was completed, leaving her estate to her children. However, she never went to the police to tell them about Lamphere's alleged life-threatening statements. And in February 1908, Bell hired another man by the name of Joe Maxson to help her with the farm. A couple of months later, Maxson awoke in the early hours of April 28, 1908, smelling smoke in his room, which was on the second floor of the Gunnis house. He opened the hall door to a sheet of flames and screamed Gunnis's name and those of her children, but got no response. He slammed the door and then, in his underwear, leapt from the second-story window, barely surviving the fire that was closing in around him. He raced to town to get help, but by the time it arrived, the house was already in smoking ruins. Four bodies were found inside the house the headless corpse of a woman, and three children. On site was County Sheriff Albert Smutzer, who had heard about Lamphere's alleged threats. Taking in this grisly scene, he immediately concluded that the fire was no accident, but rather arson and murder. He then sent two of his deputies digging into the debris, looking for the corpse's missing head, and he sent two others to arrest Lamphere on the spot. When the former handyman was brought in, he denied having anything to do with the fire, claiming that he was not even near the farm when the blaze occurred. 
However, a youth by the name of John Soliam was brought forward. He claimed that he had been watching the Gunnis place, and by the way, no reason for that was given, and that he saw Lamphere running down the road from the Gunnis house just before the structure erupted in flames. Lamphere sneered, you wouldn't look me in the eye and say that. And Soliam replied with, yes, I will. You found me hiding behind the bushes and you told me you'd kill me if I didn't get out of there. Lamphere was immediately arrested and charged with murder and arson. At first, investigators believed the bodies to be those of Belle Guinness and her three children, Myrtle, age 11, Lucy, age 9, and Philip, age 5. But from the start, there were questions as to whether the headless corpse was that of Belle Guinness. The woman in the fire was estimated to be approximately 5 foot 3 and weighing about 125 pounds, significantly smaller than Big Old Belle. Furthermore, several neighbors and friends viewed the corpse, including two neighboring farmers and several friends who all said it was not Belle. The local dentist then stepped in, stating that if any dental work could be found, he could make a positive identification. The investigators then began to sift through the debris and a piece of bridge work was found. The dentist identified it as work done for Guinness and as a result, Coroner Charles Mack officially concluded that the adult female body discovered in the ruins was in fact Belle Gunness. As the investigation was ongoing, Astley Hegeling arrived in Laporte from South Dakota and told Sheriff Smutzer that he believed his brother, Andrew, had met with foul play at Gunness's hands. He also stated that Andrew had answered a matrimonial ad that had been placed by Bell Gunness in a Norwegian-language newspaper. In her reply, reply, Bell offered true love and a life of wedded bliss, but also mentioned a quick $1,000 that she needed to pay off a mortgage. When Andrew left home, he withdrew his life savings from the bank, and he was never heard from again. Hageline began even became even more convinced of foul play when he went out to the ruins of Bell's home and watched as the men digging for her head turned up eight men's watches, assorted bones, and human teeth instead. He searched through the property on his own and shouted to the men to start digging in the rubbish hole that was located in Bell's hog pen. As they began turning the earth, they found four bodies, all of them skillfully sliced apart and wrapped in oilcloth and one of those bodies belonged to his brother, Andrew Hegeline. Then Joe Maxson came forward with information that could not be ignored. He told the sheriff that Gunnis had ordered him to bring loads of dirt by wheelbarrow to a large area surrounded by a high wire fence where the hogs were fed. Maxson said that there were many deep depressions in the ground that had been covered by dirt. These filled-in holes, Gunnis had told Maxson, contained rubbish. She wanted the ground made level, so he filled in the depressions. At the same time, several farmers who had traveled past the farm at night reported having seen Bell digging with a shovel in the hog pen. Sheriff Smutzer then took a dozen men back to the farm and began to dig. And on May 3, 1908, the diggers unearthed the body of Jenny Olson, who had vanished in December 1906. They then found the small bodies of two unidentified children. As days progressed and the gruesome work continued, one body after another was discovered in Gunness's hog pen. The few that could be identified included the following. 
Ole B. Budsberg of Iola, Wisconsin, who disappeared in May of 1907. Thomas Lidbow of Chicago. He had gone to work as a hired man for Gunnis three years earlier. Henry Gerholt of Scandinavia, Wisconsin. He had gone to wed Guinness a year earlier, taking $1,500 with him. A watch matching the description of one belonging to Gerholt was found with a body. Olaf Sverhund of Chicago. Joe Moe of Elbow Lake, Minnesota. His watch was found to be in Lamphere's possession. Olaf Lindblom, age 35, from Wisconsin. William Minge, a coachman from New York City. He disappeared on April 1st of 1904. Herman Konitzer of Chicago, disappeared January 1906. Charles Edmond of New Carlisle, Indiana. George Berry of Tuscola, Illinois. Christy Hilkvin of Dover, Wisconsin. He sold his farm and moved to Laporte in 1906. Charles Nieberg, a 28-year-old Scandinavian immigrant who was living in Philadelphia. He told his friends that he was going to visit Gunnis in June 1906 and never came back. He had been working for a saloon keeper and took $500 with him. John H. McJunkin of Coralopolis, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, left his wife in December 1906 after corresponding with an unknown Laporte woman. Olaf Jensen, a Norwegian immigrant of Carroll, Indiana, he wrote his relatives in 1906 to announce that he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. Henry Bisgy of Laporte disappeared June 1906. Bisgy's hired man by the name of Edward Cannery of Pink Lake, Illinois, vanished also 1906. Bert Chase of Mishawaka, Indiana. He sold his butcher shop and told his friends that he was going to look up a wealthy widow in Indiana. His brother received a telegram supposedly from Aberdeen, South Dakota, claiming that Bert had been killed in a train wreck. After investigating, his brother discovered that the telegram was false and fictitious. Tonis Peterson Lean of Rushford, Minnesota. He's allegedly to have disappeared on April the 2nd, 1907. A gold ring marked SB, May 28, 1907, was found in the ruins, but nobody knows who he was. A hired man by the name of George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois, is alleged to gone to Laporte to meet a widow and three children in October of 1907. He was never seen again. T.J. Tiefland of Minneapolis is alleged to come to see Guinness in 1907. Frank Redinger, a farmer of Waukesha, Wisconsin. He came to Indiana in 1907 to marry, but never returned. Emil Tell, a Swedish immigrant from Kansas City, Missouri. He's alleged to have arrived in Laporte in 1907. Lee Porter of Bartonville, Oklahoma. He separated from his wife and told his brother he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. John E. Hunter left Duskasini, Pennsylvania, on November 25th in 1907. He told his daughters he was going to marry a wealthy widow in northern Indiana. George Williams of Wapawallapen, Pennsylvania, left to marry a rich widow in Indiana. Ludwig Stoll of Mount Yeager, Pennsylvania, left to marry in the west. Abraham Phillips, a railway man of Burlington, West Virginia, he left in the winter of 1907 to go to northern Indiana and marry a rich widow, and a railway watch was found in the debris of the house. Benjamin Carling of Chicago, Illinois, he was last seen by his wife in 1907 after telling her that he was going to Laporte to secure an investment with a rich widow. 
He carried $1,000 from an insurance company and borrowed money from several investors as well. In June of 1908, his widow identified his remains by the contour of his skull and three missing teeth. Augustus Gunderson of Green Lake, Wisconsin, Ole Olison of Battle Creek, Michigan, Linder Nicholson of Huron, South Dakota, Andrew Anderson of Lawrence, Kansas, Johann Sorensen of St. Joseph, Missouri, a possible victim with just a man by the name of Hinckley, and the reported unnamed victims the unnamed daughter of Mrs. H. Witzer of Toledo, Ohio. She had attended a Indiana, an Indiana University near LaPorte in 1902. An unknown man and woman, they are alleged to have disappeared the same night Jenny Olson went missing. Gunnis claimed they were a Los Angeles professor and his wife who had taken the girl to California. An unnamed brother of Miss Ginny Graham of Waukesha, Wisconsin. He had left her to marry a rich widow in Laporte, but vanished. An unnamed 50-year-old hired man from Ohio, alleged to have disappeared and Gunnis became the heir to his horse and buggy. And an unnamed man from Montana. He told people at a resort that he was going to sell Gunnis's horse and buggy, both of which were found with several other horses and buggies on the Gunnis farm. Most of the remains found on the property couldn't be identified. Because of the crude recovery methods, the exact number of individuals unearthed on the Gunnis farm is unknown. But 14 of Bell's victims were pieced together completely with the number of teeth, bones, and watches left over. And all the number murdered was estimated to be as many as 40. Ray Lamphere was arrested on May 22, 1908 and tried for murder and arson. He pled guilty to arson but denied having murdered Gunnis and her three children. His defense hinged on the assertion that the body was not Gunnis's. Lamphere's lawyer, Wirt Warden, developed evidence which contradicted Dr. Norton's identification of the teeth and bridgework. A local jeweler testified that though the gold in the bridgework had emerged from the fire almost undamaged, the fierce heat of the conflagration had melted the gold plating on several watches and items of gold jewelry. Local doctors replicated the conditions of the fire by attaching a similar piece of dental bridgework to a human jawbone and placing it in a blacksmith's forge. The real teeth crumbled and disintegrated. The porcelain teeth came out pocked and pitted, with the gold parts rather melted. Both the artificial elements were damaged to a greater degree than those in the bridgework offered as evidence of Gunnis's identity. The hired hand, Joe Moxon, and another man also testified that they'd witnessed Schultz take the bridgework out of his pocket and plan it just before it was discovered. Lamphere was found guilty of arson, but cleared of the murder. On November 26, 1908, he was sentenced to 20 years in Michigan City State Prison. He grew ill in jail and died of consumption on December 30, 1909. On January 14, 1910, the Reverend E.A. Shell came forward with a confession that Lamphere made to him while the clergyman was comforting the dying man. In it, Lamphere revealed Gunnis's crimes and swore that she was still alive. Lamphere had stated to the Reverend Shell and to a fellow convict by the name of Harry Myers, shortly before his death, that he had not murdered anyone, but that he had helped Gunnis bury many of her victims. 
According to Lamphere, when a victim arrived, Gunnis would make him feel comfortable, charm him, and cook a large meal. She would then drug his coffee, and when the man was in a stupor, she would split his head with a meat chopper. Sometimes she would simply wait for the suitor to go to bed and then enter the bedroom by candlelight and chloroform her sleeping victim. A powerful woman, Gunnis would then carry the body to the basement, place it on a table, and dissect it. She then bundled the remains and buried those in the hog pen and the grounds about the house. She had become an expert at dissection, thanks to instructions she had received from her second husband and possible victim, Peter Gunnis. To save time, she would sometimes poison her victim's coffee with strychnine. She also varied her disposal methods, sometimes dumping the course into the hog-scalding vat and covering the remains with quicklime. Lamphere even stated that if Belle was overly tired after murdering one of her victims, she merely chopped up the remains and, in the middle of the night, step into her hog pen and feed the remains to the hogs. The handyman also cleared up the mysterious question of the headless female corpse found in the smoking ruins of Gunnis' home. Days before she decided to escape Laporte, Gunnis lured a woman from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper. Gunnis, according to Lamphere, had drugged the woman, then bashed in her head and decapitated the body. The head, he claimed, had weights tied to it and was thrown into a swamp. Then she chloroformed her children, smothered them to death, and dragged their small bodies along with the headless corpse to the basement. She dressed the female corpse in her old clothing and removed her false teeth, placing these beside the headless corpse to assure it being identified as Belle Gunnis. She then torched the house and fled. Lamphere had helped her, but in the end, she betrayed him. She had not met him by the road where he was waiting and instead cut through open fields and disappeared into the woods. Some accounts suggest that Lamphere admitted that he took her to Stillwell and saw her off on a train to Chicago. Lamphere claimed that Gunnis had murdered 42 men by his count, perhaps more, and had taken amounts from them ranging from $1,000 to $32,000. She had allegedly accumulated more than $250,000 through her murder schemes over the years. By the way, just for reference, that would be $6.3 million today. And she had a small amount remaining in one of her savings accounts. But local banks later admitted that she had withdrawn most of her funds shortly before the fire, strongly suggesting that she was planning to disappear. For several decades, alleged sightings of Gunnis were reported in cities and towns throughout the United States. Friends, acquaintances, and amateur detectives also alleged spotting her in places such as Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles. As late as 1931, Gunnis was reportedly alive and living in a Mississippi town where she owned a great deal of property and lived the life of a doyen. For more than 20 years, Sheriff Smutzer himself had received an average of two reports a month. In 1931, a woman known as Esther Carlson was arrested in Los Angeles for poisoning August Lindstrom for money. Two people who had known Guinness claimed to recognize her from photographs, but the identification was never proven. Carlson died while awaiting trial, and the body believed to be that of Belle Gunnis was buried next to her first husband at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. 
On November 5, 2007, the remains were exhumed by a team of forensic anthropology graduate students from the University of Indianapolis. At least one modern researcher on the team believes Gunnis did not die in that fire. Many contend the remains of the woman found at the scene was a victim beheaded by Gunnis and planted at the scene before the farmhouse was set on fire. In April 2008, forensic scientist Andy Simons revealed that the casket contained the body parts of two children, but not of those who died in the farmhouse fire. It had been hoped that the flap of a sealed envelope would contain enough DNA to be compared to that of the body, but there wasn't. Efforts continue to find a reliable source for comparison purposes, including exhumation of additional bodies and contact with known living relatives of Bell Gunnis. And that, my darlings, is the story of one of America's first female serial killers. And hell's bells, you don't want to meet her. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of the episode. And I thank you for joining me here today. And I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that's all the time I have this evening. And I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.